This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Good morning, Roger. Good morning, world. Yes, it's that weekly visit, our get-together here on WGN Radio, the Saturday morning show. Max Armstrong along a little bit later on in the program this morning, and we'll be talking about World Dairy Expo and the biofuels controversy that uh, continues. Maybe it'll come to an end. Not sure. And, of course, we have Jim Fazell, the next-to-last visit for this year's growing season, which is pretty much coming to an end. But he'll be with us this morning to talk about some wrap-up situations if you're a gardener, a flower lover, a lawn lover, tree lover, whatever. Jim Fazell will be here to do that, and uh, we'll be joining him when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Well, just a week or two that we'll be able to say good morning to Jim Fazell here on the Saturday Morning Show because we're winding down the season, aren't we, Jim? We really are. It's a strange, strange uh, thing. You know, I look out the window here, usually at this time of year, I can look out and see my red bud out there, which is a beautiful yellow at that time. Uh, there isn't a hint of yellow in it right now, but you know what? The season is dwindling, and uh, it's been chilly the last couple of days. It's going to be chilly this coming week. Um, it's dark a lot of the time, uh, a lot of rain, and even when it's not raining, it seems like it's dark anyway. So it's fall is practically here, and it's time to bring in the plants from the garden that, that we're going to, to winter over. These would be pot plants that have spent the summer outside on vacation, things like uh, hibiscus and uh, people that have strange things out there like orchid plants or even poinsettias. Need to bring those in. Uh, you know, a friend of mine has orange trees, lemon trees, and figs. Now, these are great big plants, and they hire somebody to move them into their into their family room indoors, and they've got lights all set up for that. I don't think anybody needs to go to that extent, but those of us who have things that have been out in the yard for the, for the summer need to begin bringing them in. And we need to bring them in before we start heating indoors if we can, because it's a lot less of a shock on them to gradually go from the outdoor conditions to the indoor conditions. And if we're not heating yet, the indoor conditions are very similar to what they are outside. So this is a really good time to do it to get these plants used to what's going to happen to them. Uh, the exotic plants that I started to mention before, like orchids or azaleas or even poinsettias for forcing, uh, can be brought in now. You need to hose the dirt off of them. Clean the pots and the plants. Make sure that there are no bugs or slugs or anything on them. Uh, it might be a good idea to, set them, idea to set them someplace where you can watch them after you clean these plants up to make sure they're not, there's nothing else that's going to try to live on them. Those things need to be taken care of while you can still take the plant outdoors if you need to spray it. Uh, then they do need to be acclimated one way or another. You need to bring them into an unheated porch if you can, uh, and, and then bring them into the winter spot before the heating season begins. You need to prepare a spot for them, too. Now, if you're going to force some of these plants, they do need to have quite a bit of light, which means if you're going to put them indoors, they need to be in a room that has probably south or east light. You don't want to set them right directly in the sunlight that's coming in the window, but set them so that they get plenty of, of uh 
intensity, light intensity, and you might be inclined to prepare to turn them maybe uh, 90 degrees every couple of days so that they that they grow or, or are lighted on the same side uh, for a while. Then they turn, and you'll find that these plants try to lean toward the light, but if you turn them, you'll eventually have them growing straight. So you need to prepare a spot, need to, to have a place where you can control the, the day length or the amount of light that they get, then the day length as well. Orchids and poinsettias rely on shortening days to flower. Many of the orchid plants, not all of them, but they rely on that. So if you can put these in an unused room where the lights are not going to be turned on at night, they're going to get the normal day length, you'll find that that's what it takes for these plants to go ahead and flower. Now, things like azaleas, and azalea is a different creature altogether. That is a bush. Now, you can bring that into an unheated porch, and you can leave it there until it begins to freeze up outdoors, and as soon as the temperatures get down to in the 30s on your porch, then you need to bring that in. It's the low temperature exposure that these azaleas get that causes the buds on them to break dormancy and begin to flower. If you don't have a porch where you can put these things, um, some people actually put them in a refrigerator to light them, but you have to, to force them, but you have to light them because they do need to have lights. They need a daylight, just like these other plants. You can't put them in complete dark without killing them. So you need to bring them into some place where you can control them. Now, you're going to expect some leaf drop on them, no matter how well you acclimate them. The special treatment treatments for the azaleas, the orchids, and poinsettias, you need to keep track of which one you're trying to treat and treat it accordingly. Other things that we like to bring in are pot herbs, and we bring these in. These are things like chives and rosemary, parsley, basil, and so forth that you want to use over the winter. Very convenient to have a pot of parsley, a pot of chives, so you can clip off a few for making potato salad even in the middle of winter. Uh, for winter use, you need these pot herbs, and they're much better if they're fresh off the vine, so to speak. Select the best that you have in the garden. Uh, clean the plants up. Make sure that they're not too big or too small. They need to be a size that will fit the pots that you have. And you need to pot them up in a pot that is the right size. I don't think that you need a pot more than six inches in diameter, maybe even a four-inch pot for some of these smaller things, but a six-inch inch is a convenient size. You want to pot them up in a potting soil. Now, you can buy good potting soil at any garden center, hardware store, and so forth. Uh, it is the, the brown potting soil, not the black stuff and not the... Not the uh, uh, straight peat moss, but you want to get potting soil. It can be made from compost or whatever they happen to have. Don't use garden soil. Now, if you're going to if you're going to make your own, you can use garden soil, but you have to cut it with one-third garden soil to one-third peat moss to one-third coarse sand. Now, if you want to do that, if you have a lot of plants, that can be done, and it works just as well as the, as the commercial potting soil. Uh, once you get these plants cleaned up and in their pots, you need to to trim them up so that they're the right shape, that you don't have any overly long sprigs and so forth. Make sure that when they're they're shaped up that you have a little bit of green on each little branch on the on the shrubby type ones. On the chives, they they can actually be cut practically practically to the ground and they will continue to grow. Uh, one thing that you have to remember on some of these too. If you let them freeze up outdoors before you bring them in, they will go dormant, and the next year, particularly things like parsley, are not going to make leaves for you. They're going to make flowers, and that's not what you want indoors. So bring those in before they have a chance to freeze out there. You do need to check for bugs like you do with the other pot plants and acclimate them. Uh, set them in a bright, cool, humid place. 
One good place would be over the kitchen sink if your window sink is uh, under a window that faces east. In fact, some people build little containers, almost like a little greenhouse outside the windows, so they can keep them out there. It's cool as a rule. It's humid. That's very important. Or construct a place for them. Now, we have an indoor lighting system that I built many, many years ago. It actually has two shop light with shop lights that can be lowered down to the tops of the plants. It's on a bench that we constructed. Now, these shop lights ends up to have four 40-watt shop lights. That's fine if you're going to have uh, very many plants. Or the newer LEDs that you can get. But get a shop light that... that uh, uh, we'll work on a timer because you're going to want to, to turn these on and turn them off automatically if you can, so you don't have to remember to turn them on at 5 o'clock in the morning and turn them off at 10 o'clock. But use a timer. Uh, the last thing I want to mention is garden journals. And I talk about this a lot. If you don't have one, it's not too late to start one. You need a, something like a spiral notebook. That's all you need. Just write the, day, the year at the top. And every time you have some kind of an observation, write the date and just write it out. Things like where did the plants come from? Uh, how did they do? Did they fit in the garden? Are they what you expected? Uh, do you want to replace them? That's important. You need to check uh, uh, the plants that you do not want to regrow, things that didn't do very well. Make a note of that because if you're like I am, your memory is short, and you're going to forget what didn't grow, and you're going to plant the same beans two years in a row and say, why did I do that the second time? Anyway, very nice to have a garden journal. I have one that's been going for 40-some-odd years. And while you're at it, make a map of what the garden was like this past year so you can refer back to that. You can see where things were grown in case you, in case you want to do some rotation with tomatoes or things that, that you want to put in different places. And then keep it in a safe place. I lost mine one time. I couldn't remember where it I had an awful time. I couldn't remember what I needed to do or where it was. I finally found it before it was too late. Anyway. That's a few ideas for the startup of cleanup on your garden right now. Uh, get the pot plants and so forth that you're going to want to save indoors. Next week we're going to talk about pumpkins, and then we will talk about the garden finish-up uh, two weeks from now. Well, okay, and thanks again. As always, I hear from a lot of people who say they benefit a great deal from our conversations with Jim Fazell. Jim joins us here a couple more weeks on the Saturday Morning Show. It's 18 minutes after 5 o'clock here on this Saturday morning. Good to have you along with us, and uh, a big good morning to the many people who came up to visit at World Dairy Expo when I was there on Wednesday. That's always one of the fun parts of going to the Dairy Expo, going to the State Fair, going to the Farm Progress Show. The number of people that we really see about once a year in person and have the opportunity to catch up, and it was fun to do that on Wednesday at uh, World Dairy Expo. The uh, features are pretty similar, but different every year because of different people. But you know, one of the constants at the World Dairy Expo, the Dairy Club of the University of Wisconsin, has a tent where all they do is prepare and serve grilled cheese sandwiches. I didn't get one this year because I was busy, but every time I looked out at the line approaching the grilled cheese sandwich place, 
It was backed up probably 500 feet, people waiting to get that grilled cheese sandwich. And the Dairy Club does such a great job of featuring that delicacy every year. So a lot of people to say hello to. A great show. And uh, we always take the opportunity to sit down and visit with the general manager of World Dairy Expo, Scott Bentley. And one of the well-kept secrets every year at World Dairy Expo is what color will the shavings be in the Coliseum arena where they do all of the cattle showing. They keep that a secret. They will not tell you until opening day. And they also... And then on opening day, talk about the theme of the show. So my first question to Scott Bentley, what color are the shavings this year? They're a shade of green, and that I can tell you. The the doors have opened on the 2019 World Dairy Expo. We try to keep that a secret until opening day. Uh, so the colored shavings are green this year, and we've got a beautiful theme that aligns with the overall show theme of tools for dairy's progress we think that's fitting in this year there has been so much media coverage of the challenge of the dairy industry these days so two questions dealing with that have you seen a drop in the number of dairy cattle coming to the show great question we have approximately 2400 head of dairy cattle on the grounds this year uh, and that is um, uh, the same number as we've had the last several years so we count on between two and 2500 head of cattle on grounds and that's exactly what we have this year question number two with the challenge facing the dairy industry what about the number of commercial exhibitors Similar story, Orion. We have 859 participating companies. Uh, some of those are an affiliate basis. Some of those are contracted exhibitors, but also aligns with previous years. Our trade show square footage is sold out again this year, as is the dairy cattle footage as well. Have we added any buildings? Because you seem to do that almost every year. We've not added buildings, but I can tell you we are trying to add an educational component and component and continue to grow the educational and networking component of World Dairy Expo. And we think we've done that very successfully this year. Are we still doing the virtual farm tours? Virtual farm tours and seminars are, are, are part and parcel with the World Dairy Expo experience. This year we've added another component called the Knowledge Nook. And the Knowledge Nook is uh, educational uh, seminars each day where companies can present their latest technology, innovation, and research to our, our attendees in a more intimate setting uh, that's really directed at the individuals who are sitting in the chairs in front of them. That's working out extremely well. And the international attendance, still good? International numbers are not in, but we'll have somewhere over 2,000 international attendees. Last year, from approximately 100 countries, we'll be close to that again this year. Has concern over livestock disease impacted the movement of dairy cattle into the show at all? Not significantly. I can tell you that we take security and biosecurity extremely seriously as, a, as an organizational team. We work hard to put in SOPs to ensure that uh, uh, the cattle from the U.S. and Canada can continue to come onto the grounds and leave in a safe and healthy manner. 
your opportunity to look at the commercial exhibits, any surprises of this year or anything that's really new that you haven't seen before? Well, we've tried to give our commercial exhibitors who wanted to expand their footprint that opportunity, and of course that comes at a cost of, of allowing new uh, exhibitors uh, into World Dairy Expo, but we have 97 new exhibiting companies this year. We're very proud of that. Uh, and, and I would encourage your listeners and your viewers uh, to get onto the grounds yet this week uh, to see World Dairy Expo for yourselves. And if they can't uh, in person, they can follow us online uh, at Expo TV, which is a, which is a live streaming uh, of the World Dairy Expo experience. You have expanded the coverage of this event a great deal, not only with broadcasters and writers, but this video that you uh, present, what, daily? Daily. We uh, film uh, the uh, show ring, uh, uh, either one or two dairy cattle shows. That's live. And we also have a third channel where we're live streaming our virtual farm tours and seminars, as well as other aspects of the show uh, that uh, we bring in more of an educational component to Expo TV. So three channels, whatever the viewers like, we've got a customized experience for them. And sales are a big part of this. As a matter of fact, I ran into Tom Morris, and he said he's been doing the Holstein Classic for, what, 30, 31 years? 30-plus years, that's exactly right. And I know he's really excited about the lineup that we'll be selling uh, uh, yet this week. We have uh, several breed sales that uh, happen on the grounds of World Dairy Expo. Those are international sales with the finest genetics from around the world and buyers from around the world that come together as a part of the unique World Dairy Expo experience. And I guess one of the big changes I've seen over the years I've been attending, the live animals are important, but now it goes well beyond that to the, gen to the genetics. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, genomics are so critically important in the genetics industry, and, and, and now, of course, uh, there are genomic sales and, and, and online sales where the cattle are not even presented in person. So uh, this industry continues to evolve, and certainly marketing is leading that way. So as we ring down the curtain on this year's show, already planning next year? We are. We certainly are. We have a theme uh, for the 2020 World Dairy Expo. Can't share that with you now, uh, but it's part of the pageantry, part of the cachet of World Dairy Expo. It's the theme, it's the colored shavings, it's the grilled cheese sandwiches, it's, it's the emotion that brings folks back year after year. And I know better than to ask you what color the shavings will be next year. <laughs> you can ask and I'll give you the same answer. Come back next year. Indeed we will. Scott Bentley, General Manager of World Dairy Expo, sharing with us some of the highlights of this week's show. And, of course, today is the final day. They'll ring down the curtain late afternoon with the selection of the Supreme Grand Champion Dairy Female. Always the highlight of the show because that means you're putting breed champions against breed champions and uh, interesting to see whether it's going to be an Ayrshire, a Brown Swiss, a Holstein, a Guernsey, whatever. Speaking of Guernseys, yesterday they had judging for the, Jersey, uh, the Guernsey show. And of course, uh, that's my favorite breed because as a youngster, that's what I grew up with on the farm in Wisconsin. We had Guernsey cows. And don't ask me about the names because the names involve farms and the sires and the dams. Oh, let me explain that, too. Uh, the father of the animal is the sire, 
the mother is the dam. So when we talk about sires and dams, we're talking about moms and dads in the dairy cow breeds that we talk about. Yesterday, Valley Gem Atlas Malt ET took home the honor of grand champion and best bred and owned of the International Guernsey Show. Uh, the four-year-old cow and uh, senior champion was awarded the Allen Hetz Grand Champion Trophy, the $1,000 Utter Comfort Grand Champion Award, and the Douglaston Manor Farm Trophy for her breeder exhibitor, Valley Gem Farms of Cumberland, Wisconsin. Congratulations to that cow and all of the other breed winners at World Dairy Expo as they ring down the curtain today on this year's 53rd edition of the show and as you heard already making plans for next year's world dairy expo back with more when we continue on the saturday morning show you talked about rain roger and boy we've seen our share of that this spring and now we're beginning to see it this fall uh, rained all the way driving to Madison on Wednesday. We drove in rain all the way. Coming back, the rain had stopped in Wisconsin at World Dairy Expo, but the minute we crossed the Illinois state line, it started raining again and rained a good deal more. So we are apparently are going to be in a situation where harvest is going to be a challenge. I saw a lot of standing water along the roadsides driving I-90 up to Madison on Wednesday. So we'll be talking about that as the harvest season moves along because it's going to be a challenge because of the late planting season and now because of the rain again that's impacting parts of the Midwest where we grow most of our corn and soybeans. Coming up... uh, uh, discussion of market activity but right now we say welcome to samuelson says i'm orion and this is national 4-h week it is national 4-h week observed every year in october and i want to take a moment to encourage all of you to be supportive of 4-h either actively as a member or as a 4-h club leader or just to help young people prepare themselves to become leaders in whatever career path they choose. And we still have the challenge of sharing our life experience with people who never had the opportunity to be a 4-H member and explain to them what the program does for young people. I wear a lapel pin everywhere I go with the American flag and the 4-H clover emblem. People look at it and often say, I thought you were Norwegian. Why are you wearing an Irish flag? My response, no, this is not the Irish flag. It is the 4-H clover, the symbol of 4-H clubs for decades here in the United States. And the 4-H's stand for head, heart, hands, and health. History tells us that Jess... Field Chambaugh developed the clover pin with an H on each leaf back in 1910, and by 1912, they were called 4-H clubs. 
1914, the passage of the Smith-Lieber Act created the Cooperative Extension Service System at the U.S. Department of Agriculture and nationalized 4-H. Part of my annual check writing includes a check that goes to the National 4-H Foundation because I recognize what it did for me and for my career. I want young people today, whether they are on a farm or in the city, to get involved in the 4-H program, to build leadership, to instill the ability to communicate your feelings on important issues in agriculture or other areas of life. That is what 4-H clubs do and have been doing since 1910. I have shared with you many times that I have the career in broadcasting, covering agriculture that I have today because of my public speaking activity in 4-H and FFA as a young person. So during 4-H week, write a check and make your investment in the 4-H program and support the leaders and the members who are the future leaders of tomorrow, helping them prepare for the future. Happy 4-H Club Week. My thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of Nexstar Radio Group here on Chicago's very own 720 WGN Chicago. We're at uh, 22 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. And a lot more to talk about yet, but uh, tell you what, we're going to uh, put Max Armstrong to work here and uh, to talk markets with his guests when we continue on the Saturday morning show. It's been a while since we've had the opportunity to visit with Brian Split from agmarket.net. Welcome back to the studio here. Good to visit with you, sir. Great to be here, Max. Thanks for having me. It's a moving target as this year goes on, but it's it's been that way throughout the year. We've got a crop in the field, and we're going to struggle to get it harvested, it appears, in many areas. We're getting a very late start compared to what many producers would like to see. Well, that's right, and uh, we continue to see uh, precipitation. I, I talk to producers across the country, and, and uh, up north have been really frustrated with the lack of the ability to get in the field and get work done. But we contrast that with a very dry area to the southeast. Uh, those farmers who have the crop in the field in western Tennessee, western Kentucky, very good yields, they've had no problem with harvest, have they? Well, and like you said, uh, fantastic yields down there, and uh, that's definitely one of the bright spots as far as uh, production and, and yields compared to uh, expectations this year. I was looking at some private numbers the other day ahead of the crop report coming up on Thursday in the week ahead, and numbers are circulating around out there that seem to show some people are looking toward an even higher corn yield and corn production for the country. Where are you on that, Brian? Uh, we're in the belief that the yield is going to be uh, brought down uh, over time. And, and so similar to last year, the USDA really overshot yield in the August WASDE report and then revised it lower as we went September through November. And we're looking for a similar pattern this year uh, with the USDA chipping away at yield starting on this October WASDE report. So do you have a number in mind that you folks have put together thus far? Uh, you know, we're going to be in the uh, the mid-160s, uh, really, uh, and that's always one of the, the 
things in the industry is what is the guess of the USDA and the guess of where the crop is internally. Uh, internally, we think that the yield is going to be closer to the lower 160s, uh, but uh, for this particular report, we're looking at a, a slight revision uh, down around the 166.5 area. So you're certainly not thinking that this is a national average corn yield of 169 bushels that, that some have suggested. No, we're not in that camp, and I know uh, you had mentioned there was a private revision or, or estimate that had come out uh, earlier this week, and um, and they were like uh, like you said, looking for the yield to come up about a bushel from their their estimate last month. Uh, that is not the camp that we are in. I think they were suggesting that the Iowa average yield was going to be just just shy of 200 bushels. That would be a very strong yield, wouldn't it? It would be a strong yield. Uh, but, you know, we've been getting yield reports over the last couple of weeks. And uh, just the lack of, of yields that have been at or above last year's levels, uh, you know, really makes us take pause in getting too uh, comfortable with the idea that yields are going to be that close to 170 bushels per acre this year. What's your feeling at your firm on soybeans? Where will the soybean yield be? Well, soybeans, uh, I think we're thinking that uh, the yield adjustments could be a little bit more aggressive to the downside there. We've really only heard of, of uh, very small pockets of, of yields that have been 70 bushel plus. Uh, and even those areas, uh, those yields sound good, but that's still 10 bushels below their yields last year. Uh, predominantly, we're hearing uh, very consistent yield reports of, of 10 to 20 bushels below last year. So we feel that uh, over the next few months, we're going to see the, the soybean yield on a national average trickle down towards 43 bushels per acre. Those combine reports have been uh, a little bit sporadic. Not too many of them thus far. We'll be getting more and more, and uh, you'll be no doubt watching those, and we'll try to get a better handle on just where the yield is. Well, that's right. Uh, every day and every week we get reports and we try to compile them and uh, see you know, what that means for the big picture. But uh, really, in all reality, um, the thing that matters is how the USDA manages the balance sheet. You know, that's what the trade's going to react from. Uh, we do have a, a, a change to the quarterly stocks uh, versus the expectations, and that was given earlier this week. And that's really going to set the tone because those quarterly stocks for both corn and soybeans did come in uh, substantially lower than where the trade was expecting them to be. That was a surprise and a friendly surprise. I, I think a lot of people were thinking, okay, now they're finally, finally looking at reality at USDA. Many growers have struggled with this uh, USDA assessment of crops this year, haven't they? Well, and I think you could go all the way back to the March quarterly stock report and uh, the subsequent WASDE report in April where the USDA reduced the feed residual demand for corn. And uh, that was really a tough pill to swallow based on the amount of animals on feed and uh, really the rough winter that we had last year. So I think that's uh, a number that has been disputed, and I think this report uh, is where the USDA came clean. From the uh, standpoint of the changed balance sheet, then you don't have to drop those yields too much to see a very interesting scenario, correct? I mean, if you're, if you're looking at adjusting down a corn yield, maybe two or three or four bushels, this makes the ball game a little more interesting. Well, and that's just on the yield. Um, I think in this October report that the USDA is also going to start looking again at the acreage scenario. And, uh, 
even if they don't change the planted acres, we think that the USDA is too high on the percent of the planted acres that we will harvest. Uh, internally, we're thinking that's going to be closer to 89.5% of what was planted will be harvested. And uh, that's going to be a revision of about a million acres of harvestable acres, which is an, another good chunk of production that comes off the balance sheet. Help us sort out these excessive rain amounts. We talked about the rains earlier. The rains have been persistent in some of those places in the northern part of the Corn Belt. But it's the amounts that have turned people's heads. When you when you see five inches dumped into a fairly significant area right across central Iowa, up into areas of Wisconsin and Minnesota, uh, you hear reports of eight inches here in some places. That's crop damaging rain in, in those parts of the Corn Belt, is it not? Well, crop damaging, and, and at the very least, it's going to be something that is going to change the timing of everything in those areas. So... Uh, that is probably going to lead towards some basis opportunity. So as the grain merchants and buyers realize that the new crop uh, in that vicinity is not going to be coming online as soon as it would have been otherwise, uh, that'll have some short-term basis impacts. And I think that does provide some opportunity for some of the unmarketed grain uh, that is still sitting in bins from the previous harvest. Still, to get us back in touch with reality, it's hard to sustain a rally in this market, it appears, Brian. I mean, after we watched the rally inspired by the USDA earlier this week, uh, it was tough to keep that going. The wheat market, for example, after good gains fell back with some traders saying, hey, uh, there's no shortage of wheat in the world right now. We have plenty in terms of supplies. Well, that's right. And, and uh, the Egyptian buying unit, Gask, uh, they recently purchased wheat from France, and so... Uh, we still are are not competitive uh, internationally on on the wheat prices, and so we saw, as you'd mentioned, wheat values come down uh, somewhat drastically over the course of the week. I think the the corn and soybean markets also hit some major targets. The December corn contract had a gap that it left from the August WASDE report, so the high this week, three ninety two and three quarters, went right to that gap and filled it. And I think that was a major target that traders wanted to see. South America production, of course, looms large unless they have some kind of a problem. There had been some interest in the fact that they've been dry in areas down there. What's your assessment of it at the current time? Well, dryness down there during planting to me is something that uh, will delay their planting. The South American producers want to see it a little bit of a rain before they get the crop in the ground. Now, if that was a, a story where we were hot and dry as we got into the developmental stage of the crop, then I think you'd start to see actual production estimates come down. But uh, for now, it's more of a timing issue than anything. But that could lead to the idea that uh, the longer planning delays go on, uh, the more that the world buyers will come to the U.S. to fill that gap between the last part of the South American old crop and uh, when their new crop comes online. So around your shop, how much talk is there about a harvest time, significant harvest time rally here? Well, we do think that uh, as we go through the next couple of months that we're going to continue to see the USDA revised yield lower. Uh, it does look like the market has made its fall low. That seems very apparent. We've had two USDA reports, both the September WASDE report and the September quarterly stock report, that have had a bullish reaction. So it appears that the market is now in a buy-the-dip mode, and we are establishing an uptrend. And we would uh, expect to see some higher prices as we go through the next few months. Brian Split, agmarket.net. Thanks for coming in, sir. Thank you for having me, as always. 
Well, during his visit, uh, Max and uh, Brian split this morning. They were talking about per acre yields. And uh, this week, uh, many of you know that Max and I do a weekly program on RFD-TV called This Week in Agribusiness. But on RFD-TV this week, they honored the world champion soybean producer. Randy Dowdy was honored with a special edition of Rural America Live. Dowdy surpassed his previous world record of 171 bushels per acre, set back in 2016, to set the new world record for soybean yield at, get this number, 190.23 bushels per acre. Randy Dowdy, congratulations to uh, a producer who really per acre yield far and away above the average yield. The other news this week that had uh, corn farmers particularly talking, the announcement that the Trump administration is uh, planning to boost U.S. biofuels consumption starting next year to help struggling corn farmers. That move cheered the agriculture industry, but of course triggered a backlash from big oil that back in the 70s had gas lines at the stations and record high prices. I still find it hard to feel sorry for big oil. But the plan would require an unspecified increase in the amount of ethanol that oil refiners must add to their fuel in 2020 and would also aim to remove further barriers to the sale of higher ethanol blends of gasoline like E15. The announcement by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, said that uh, the uh, program will promote domestic ethanol and biodiesel production, supporting our nation's farmers and providing greater energy security. But some skepticism from biofuel companies, farmers, and Midwest lawmakers that it may or may not finally become the rule. But uh, Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa said the president heard that message from corn farmers and has acted on it. Our message was clear. Uphold the RFS, the Renewable Fuel Standards, 15 billion means 15 billion gallons, said the senator, who was instrumental in putting together the deal. So we'll wait to see if it becomes reality and when it becomes reality. Meanwhile, the African swine fever situation continues to spread. More countries reporting it this week, and we're learning more about uh, the uh, South Korea Uh, being close, of course, to the North Korea. And uh, North Korea has uh, the African swine fever, and it's spreading into South Korea. And in order to uh, take advantage of that need for pork in China, JBS USA, that's the meatpacking company that has processing plants here in the United States, but is headquartered in South America. And the company this week announced it will remove a growth drug that's banned by Beijing 
from its U.S. hog supplier. Accelerating the competition for pork exports as China continues to grapple with a devastating pig disease, a number that to me was almost unbelievable that came out in a study report this week from Rabobank. That's a bank that does some business in China. And they said by the end of this year, the hog numbers in China could be down 55%. That's an unbelievable number, but African swine fever is not curable at the moment. There is no vaccine, and they're still working on getting a vaccine, and meanwhile stepping up the uh, rules and regulations on what you can bring into the United States, which gives me an opportunity to repeat a message that I do often. If you're traveling foreign, And when you're on the airplane coming back to the U.S., the flight attendant will hand you a card that you're required to fill out. And on that card, one of the questions is, have you visited a farm during your international travel? And don't be dishonest in that answer, because African swine fever can be spread in so many ways, doesn't affect humans but it's fatal to hogs. And so fill out that card honestly, answer the questions honestly, because it's to the benefit of all of us. So coming up next week, uh, reports on weather and harvest and whether or not we're going to be able to get it going seriously. We hope we'll get the dry weather, but be sure to harvest safely. Make sure you have a fire extinguisher on the uh, combine because in spite of all the rain, fires can break out on that valuable machine. And so make sure you have a fire extinguisher. And when you're moving your combine on rural roads or highways, um, be a good neighbor and pull over and let that long line of traffic behind you get on by before they do something foolish that could cause an accident to you and to them. Our thanks to uh, Bob, uh, who does the engineering work here on the Saturday Morning Show, and our thanks to you for listening to the Saturday Morning Show. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.